Good morning once again. Great to see each and every one of you this morning. This morning, um, some of you might not uh, be aware of this, but this is um, what is what is being called Reformation Sunday. Um, on Tuesday, the 31st, uh, we will celebrate uh, 500 years since the Reformation. Now, the Reformation was a, a time in history uh, in Europe when, basically, just to put it really simply, it's a time when uh, biblical truth was rediscovered. After centuries and centuries of being buried under tradition and all different kinds of things, uh, it was rediscovered and brought back to uh, brought back up up to the surface. And uh, we who are gathering here today, uh, we have benefited from uh, the Reformation. And so I think it's uh, appropriate to mention it today. Um, also, because one of, the, one of the key things that was sort of rediscovered in the Reformation was um, the, the, um, the supremacy of Christ. Uh, the way the Reformers put it, they, they put it in terms like, uh, Christ alone, that Christ alone was sufficient, that Christ alone uh, was uh, able to save us by himself without any contribution on our part. Uh, you know, we didn't need to help him or add to that. So they emphasized uh, Christ alone. They emphasized scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone. In the end, it was all to the glory of God alone. So that was the, uh, that, that was the Reformation 500 years ago. Now, the, the reason why I think it, it connects with uh, our message today is because what we want to focus on today, we're going to look at some of the same verses that we looked at previously, but I want to just take a little bit of a different angle on it today. And I want us to see how uh, these early believers, they really could accurately be identified as the Jesus people. That That's really... Uh, a good way to understand who they were. Their lives, their identity, their purpose revolved entirely around the purpose of Jesus Christ and the person of Christ. So their their faith in Christ wasn't a, a side interest. It wasn't something added to their already busy lives, but Jesus became the absolute center of their lives. And so as we look at some of the things they were engaged in, I want to look at them from the standpoint of um, them being Jesus people. Now, they understood something that C.S. Lewis would later express when he said this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. That, that is an important statement. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Uh, you know, look, if it's not true, then it doesn't mean anything. If it is true, it is infinitely important. But in other words, to have sort of a, a lackadaisical uh, perspective or attitude toward Christianity, that, that really is, uh, it's not possible. I mean, you can, but, but it's, it's the complete wrong response. And what we see with these people is that they understood that. So Christ, the gospel, the church, the mission, this became everything to them. 
Paul the Apostle, who will later come along, we're not, uh, we're not there in the story yet. He will uh, appear later in the story. Uh, but he would write one of his letters to the church in the city of Philippi. And in that letter, he would say this. He would say, for me to live is Christ. In other words, for Paul, his whole life, his entire life was now taken up with the person of Christ. And that's what we see with these here in the passage that we have read together today. Uh, This was the mindset that was being expressed by them. And so we see it uh, worked out in the fact that they devoted themselves to these, these four things. So previously, we looked at the things they devoted themselves to and the things that that resulted from that. So today we want to focus more on uh, the things they devoted themselves to. But like I said, I want, to, I want us to see them just in a little bit of a different uh, context. I want, to see them, I want us to see them more in a purely Jesus context. So it says that they devoted themselves, first of all, to the apostles' doctrine. So what is the apostles' doctrine? Well, you could say that it was the Jesus story. I mean, that, after all, that's what the apostles were preaching. They were preaching Jesus. Now, technically, you could say that uh, it was the New Testament. Uh, we, we would say today that the New Testament is the apostles' doctrine. That's true. But remember, at this stage, the New Testament wasn't written. So what, what were they devoting themselves to? The apostles' doctrine, which, as I said, would have been the Jesus story. So as they gathered together, they told the story of Jesus over and over and over again. And as they would tell the story of Jesus, they would uh, tell that it was uh, not just the the historical events that they were aware of from the, um, the announcement to Mary that she would be the mother of the Messiah to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and to his his uh, public ministry over those three years. But they, because Jesus taught them this, they would also understand that the law and the prophets and the Psalms, that all of those things that they held dear as, as their scriptures, that these were all um, a revelation of Jesus as well. And so this is what they did. They gathered together And they spoke about Jesus to one another, wanting to just know everything that they could possibly know about him. Now, now think about it. When, when you hear a good story, you know, you don't just want to hear a good story once, right? You want to hear it over and over again. And you want to see even more of, of the detail of the story. You know, maybe it's a book you read or maybe it's a film that you've seen. Um, you know, there, there are some books or some films that you, you might see and you think, oh, this is such an amazing story. And, and the more you read it or the more you see it, the more you realize, wow, there's, there's more to the story than I thought. So, so that's, that's really what they were doing. It was the Jesus story that they gathered around. They... In, in the best sense, they were obsessed with Jesus. And his story so moved their heart that they couldn't get enough of it. So they would gather together and they would also bring their friends. They would say to others, come and, and hear the, the Jesus story. 
Now they heard the story from Peter and that's how they ended up doing what they were doing, gathering together now on a regular basis. But initially they heard the story of Peter. They, they had like this vague idea. They'd heard about Jesus. They'd heard that there was this man who, you know, was a prophet and they, they'd heard that he had been crucified and all, but they didn't understand the significance of it until that day when Peter preached to them and he made the significance clear to them and then they embraced it. But then from that point on, they went on to tell the story. So as we look at them as Jesus people, we can say that they were also people of the word. And this is true of all Jesus people. When people really meet the true Jesus, they fall in love with the word of God. The Bible becomes uh, a very important part of their lives. They realize that the Bible is not the word of men. The Bible is actually the word of God, that it's a place that we receive uh, the revelation of God. It's a place where we receive our instruction on how to live. It's a place where we receive all of those great promises about what God uh, has in store for those who love him. The Jesus people are also Bible people. And every time in history where there's been a great work of the Spirit and lots of people have turned to Jesus, you find this, this common thing. The Reformation, as we talked about a moment ago, the Reformation, probably the most vital thing that it did was it brought the Bible back into the hands of the common person. You see, up until that point for many centuries, the Bible was sort of locked away and the church kept uh, the average person from even having any access to it. But during the Reformation, the, the scriptures were translated into the common language. That's, it was then that it was translated into um, English from the Greek text. It was then it was translated into the common German language from the Greek text. And so this is always um, goes hand in hand. Jesus people are Bible people. You know, back in the 1970s here in our region, here in Southern California and throughout the state, uh, we have what is known now today as a, a Jesus people movement. And that's how those back then were being identified. Uh, it, it, you know, coincided with the, the counterculture movement, the hippie movement. Uh, people back then kind of already dressed like Jesus, at least what we thought that he might have looked like, you know, robes and long hair and beards and stuff like that. Um, we don't know that Jesus actually dressed like that, but you know, there were, there were people walking around and I remember in those days looking at people and thinking, yeah, that, that guy kind of looks like Jesus, but he kind of looks like a freak too. So, um, the, you know, the label Jesus freak was added onto that. And you know, there, there was something to that. But the point that I'm making is one of the things that was really noticeable as well was everybody was carrying a Bible around. That's what was happening. People were, were walking around with Bibles. Now, when I was a kid, we had a Bible, but it was on the coffee table. You know, that's where it went. It was like a, a part of the decoration in the family. And you might read it sometimes, but you know, it was there more for decoration. But suddenly, this Jesus thing is happening and people are walking around with big old giant leather Bibles. And they're reading them wherever they went. 
And I actually happened to be part of that, so I was doing the same thing. But it's just consistent with what happens when people really meet Jesus. They become people of the word. The Bible becomes for them the absolute authority. It's no longer a question as to whether, well, I'm not sure if the Bible's really God's word or man's word. I don't, I'm not sure if I can trust it on this or if I believe it about that. Uh, no, for Jesus' people, the Bible becomes, this, this is God's word. And so that's what was happening with them. They devoted themselves to the scripture. They read it. They meditated on it. They studied it. It became the greatest source of influence in their lives because the story of Jesus captured their hearts. And let me just ask this question. Has the story of Jesus captured your heart? Do you long to hear more about him? Do you want to know him in an in a ever-increasing way? Because look, this is, this is um, something that there's no um, into as far as the depth of it. The scripture tells us that uh, God's riches are unsearchable, meaning that you can never exhaust them. So if, if we come to a place where we think, well, you know, I, I pretty much know enough about Jesus. I know as much as I need to know, I guess. Then we're, we're missing out on something really important. And that's that we can get to know him better and better and better. And so when the people of God come together as Jesus people, we should come together um, around the story of Jesus. That's what they did. But secondly, it says that they devoted themselves to fellowship. So to fellowship, this would be to um, the life of Jesus or, or to the Jesus lifestyle. You see, the story of Jesus wasn't uh, something they merely ascribed to intellectually. For them, it was a way of life. It was something to be practiced. And so it says that they came together in fellowship. And the word fellowship, I mentioned it before, the Greek word, it's a word that's a little bit hard to translate into English in the sense that there's no one English word that's going to do it absolute justice. But it could also, it, it could be understood as the common life, coming together in Christ, uh, having a common life together. Now, here's something that's important to remember that those who came together uh, in this common life, they came from all different kinds of backgrounds. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but, but let's not forget that. You know, we sometimes in our modern context, we, we think of uh, the Christian life being just for, you know, one certain type of person, maybe uh, racially even. In some cases, some people think that or some people think uh, socially it's for one type of person, but that is not the case. But as they, they came together, because Jesus had the, the reputation and it was a reality that he went about doing good. So when they came together, that was part of their objective to do good. So they came together and it says that their lives were marked by bearing one another's burdens. They made sure that everybody was provided for and taken care of. Uh, we read here that no one considered anything to belong to themselves. Uh, they were no longer just looking out for themselves or for their own interest. Why, why was that the case? Because that wasn't the Jesus way. So they came together and they, they sought to live out 
the Jesus lifestyle, that of doing good, that of helping, that of blessing, that of living for others rather than living for self. And this had a, a huge impact on the culture around them. You know, today we have um, not just the biblical account of what the Christians were like back in those days or how they lived, but we have, we have various other accounts from uh, sometimes from Roman officials, uh, sometimes from philosophers of the day. A lot of people talked among themselves about what the Christians looked like in the culture because the Christians were so different. They were extraordinarily different than, than the culture that they were in. And in these discussions that we find um, that have come down to us today from these ancient sources, we find that there was consistently, even if they disagreed with the Christians, which most of them did, but there was consistently the acknowledgement that they lived extraordinarily um, compassionate, loving, helpful lives. That, that's the common um, testimony that, that comes down to us. From the, the Roman writers, from the philosophers of the day, they, they saw that there was something about them, that they were living the Jesus lifestyle. So it was the Jesus story. It was the community life where they're living the Jesus lifestyle, the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship. It says, thirdly, that they were also breaking bread. And we pointed out before that breaking bread here is not uh, simply a reference to breaking bread like having a meal. This, I think, is clearly a reference to what we commonly call the Lord's Supper. So this is something that they did as they gathered together. They regularly did this. And what they were doing is they were remembering the Jesus sacrifice. So do you get the point? Do you see how everything is about Jesus? It's the Jesus story and it's the Jesus life. And then this uh, gathering around and, and remembering the Jesus sacrifice. Because of course, that was the, really the key part of the story. That Jesus, this uh, man who was born of this virgin Mary, that he was actually the son of God who came from heaven to earth for the main reason of offering up his life as a sacrifice for sin so the sins of mankind could be forgiven, so we could be reconciled to God and live in an eternal relationship with him. That's, that's the main message. And all of that happened through the sacrifice that Jesus made. So as they would come together, part of what they did was they would rehearse the death and the resurrection of Jesus over and over again, uh, over and over again to one another uh, through partaking of the bread and the cup. Because that's what happens when we share that meal together, the bread and the cup. What are we doing? Paul tells us that we are remembering the Lord's death until he comes. And so that's what the Jesus people do. We tell one another the Jesus story. And in this particular case, we actually, in a sense, we sort of act out the Jesus story. That's what's happening because it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we read that he took bread and he broke it and he 
distributed it. And he said, take this and eat it, all of you, for this is my body, which is broken for you. And after that, it says that he took the cup and he passed it out and he said, drink this, all of you, for this cup is the new covenant in my blood that is shed for the remission of sins. So when we come together and we share in that bread and the cup, what we're doing is we're rehearsing once again the sacrifice of Jesus. We're reminding ourselves of what he did for us. And notice that this is, it's important to see here that this is a collective experience. This is something that we do together. And it's also important to remember that we do this um, as every tribe and tongue and nation. You know, one of the amazing things about the gospel and about the Jesus story itself is that through Christ, all people are united together and made one. Now, human history is pretty much made up of divisions between peoples and conflicts that result from those divisions or conflicts that cause those divisions. And the world we live in today is pretty much just right on course with what human history has been like, right? We, we have division, we have tension, we have conflict, and it's um, sometimes socially based, sometimes it's racially based, uh, sometimes it's politically based. But whatever the, the root cause of it, it's, it's basically a fragmentation of the human family. Well, Jesus came and offered himself to bring us not only to God, but to bring us together as one. And so when we gather together around the Jesus sacrifice and you are partaking of that bread and I am partaking of that bread then that's what brings us together. So regardless of other things that might tend to want to separate us, that's what makes us one. And I think this is such an important thing to recognize, especially in this time, because there's tons of division in the country, around the world. But you know, there's actually even division in the church because people are losing sight of Jesus you know, if you lose sight of Jesus, if it's not really the Jesus story anymore, or, you know, but it becomes some other emphasis, then inevitably you're going to have a problem. And if you're no longer really looking to live the Jesus lifestyle, then that's going to create a problem too. And if we lose sight of the Jesus sacrifice that brings us all together collectively, that will actually result in the opposite of what God intends. So they came together around the Jesus sacrifice. They rehearsed it just as we do with the bread and the cup. And they gave thanks. In um, Colossians, Paul writes there, and he speaks of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And he speaks of doing whatever you do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, the, the Greek words, giving thanks, uh, are, are the word Eucharist. And so when we come together to share in the Jesus sacrifice, it's a time where we are giving thanks. 
We're thanking God collectively for what he's done for us. And as we're singing the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs, you know, it's like we're reminding one another. See, this is why it's so vitally important that we come together. Now, I'm a big fan of uh, the internet and all that, you know, all, all of the benefits and blessings of it, you know, especially when it comes to the gospel getting out all around the world. But one of the downsides of the internet is how, you know, people think, well, you know, I don't really need to go to church anymore. I can just stay home and watch it online. Now, thank God for some people that is available because they actually are incapable of, of getting out. They're incapable of getting to church for, you know, different reasons. But I, I'm afraid that there are far too many people that um, they're perfectly capable to get out and to gather with God's people, but they choose not to because they can just sit and watch it online. Don't do that. God intends that we get together. Being together is a vital part of our, our Christian lives. And unless we're together, we can't really live the Jesus lifestyle too well, can we? How are we going to bear one another's burdens if we're not with one another? How are we going to know who's struggling? How are we going to know who's having a difficult time or a challenging time? Or how are we going to come alongside and help if we're not connected to people through fellowship? So this is what they did. They gathered and they gathered around the Jesus sacrifice. And then fourthly, the fourth thing it mentions here is the prayers. And I would call this the Jesus privilege. Do we know what an amazing privilege we have? The privilege of prayer. We have this privilege because of our relationship with Jesus. Remember, it was Jesus who taught us to pray our father in heaven. You see, it's through Jesus that God has become our father. So it's through Jesus that we have this access to God. Now, we as, as Jesus people, we have guaranteed access to God. We have the promise that when we pray, God hears us. Paul the Apostle, speaking of that, he said this. He said, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence. And then he went on and he said, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says it's through him that we have this confidence that I I can access God. And therefore, I bow my knee. Paul prays with confidence, knowing that he has entered into this privilege of being able to have access to God. Hebrews chapter four tells us that we, through our great high priest, we can now come boldly before the throne of grace. So they gathered together, told the Jesus story to one another, lived out the Jesus lifestyle, experienced the Jesus sacrifice together, and exercised the Jesus privilege together by praying. Do we do that? Do we take advantage of that? Now, again, all of this is done collectively, as we see. One of the things that's happened in our Christian experience these days is the, 
the overemphasis on the individual part of it. Now, it's wonderful that we have an individual uh, aspect to our relationship with God, right? I, I mean, of course, that, that's a huge thing. But it sometimes is emphasized to the point where we fail to recognize that I am, yes, individually loved by God and I'm saved by him as an individual person and I have, I have direct individual access to him, but I am also part of a body. I'm part of a family. I'm part of something bigger than just me. And if I, if I never connect with that, I am actually gonna miss out on a huge part of what being a Christian is really all about. You can't really enter into the fullness or experience the fullness of the Christian life on your own. It's, it's not intended to be that way. It's intended that we experience it together. And so they prayed, of course, all of them undoubtedly, like all of us would do, they prayed by themselves. And thank God we do that and we can do that. We ought to do that. But they prayed together. They came together and they understood that as we come together and exercise this privilege of prayer, God is listening to us. We're his people and we're praying for one another. And again, when we're together, we know what to pray for, for one another. It's so important that we know what's happening in people's lives so we can pray, but if we're not together, we won't be able to even know how to pray. So this amazing privilege of prayer, if we forget that it is to also happen in the context of us gathering collectively, we can miss out on that privilege. But this is who they were. They were, as I said, they were the Jesus people telling the Jesus story living the Jesus lifestyle and experiencing the, the Jesus sacrifice and, and exercising the Jesus privilege. So here's the question that we all have to ask ourselves. Are we one of those kind of people? Do, do we see ourselves as the Jesus people? Or would other people look on and say, yeah, you know, yeah, those are the Jesus people. And they might not agree with us, but they say, well, you know, they, they're the Jesus people and they're obsessed with the Jesus story. And, you know, they kind of live the Jesus lifestyle too. Is that how we are portraying ourselves? And, and really, unless we just genuinely are the Jesus people, um, we won't be portrayed as the Jesus people. We might be seen as religious people. We might be seen as um, self-righteous people. We might be seen as the religious right or something like that. But you know, if, if our focus is really on Jesus, if we're really more identified with the Jesus people, you know, people even on the outside, they, they see a difference. They understand that there's a distinction. And so are we the Jesus people? Do we love the Jesus story? Is this a story that I, I want to hear over and over and I want to know more and more about it? 
Or is it something that I just say, oh yeah, I heard that story already. That's, that's great. Now let's move on to something else. No, if we really understand who Jesus is, like, like C.S. Lewis said, you know, we can't ha- have a moderate interest in it. If we really understand who Jesus is, we're going to want to know more and more and more about the story. You know, Paul says to the church in Rome, and think about this with me. He says to the church in Rome. So that means the believers in Rome, right? Paul says, I am, I, I am so excited about coming to you and preaching the gospel to you. Now, here's the question. Well, why is Paul going to go preach the gospel to the church? Because the gospel, uh, that's to be preached to the unbelievers so they can come into the church. The, the, the church already knows the gospel, presumably. But Paul didn't see it that way. Yes, they were believers. Yes, they had received the gospel in one sense. But Paul knows that there's so much more to the gospel that they uh, need to still discover. Paul knows that they need to know not just the fact that Jesus you know, died for them on a cross and rose from the dead, but they need to know all the implications of that. And you see, that's what's happening as we gather around Jesus. And as we go over the Jesus story, we are learning more and more about all the full implications. You see, the gospels give us the account of the life and and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. But there's so much more that that is connected to it. And that's what the New Testament letters are about. They apply it. They tell us the significance of it. They tell us things like God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So that when Jesus, we read in Matthew, when Jesus is crucified, this is what's happening. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing our trespasses to us, not holding us accountable for our sins, but transferring our sins onto Jesus so we could be forgiven of our sins. And so these are the kinds of things that the Jesus story goes deeper and deeper into these things. Are we actively engaged as part of the Jesus community? Like I said a minute ago, you're not intended to live your your life as a Christian independent of other believers. You have to be engaged. Are we part of the Jesus community? Look at the things that it says here and think about how could this even happen? Of course, it couldn't happen if you just sought to go alone in, in your Christian life. You, you know, it, we, we read here about all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions or goods, divided them among all as anyone had need, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity in heart, praising God. See, it's, it's a family. And so that's why we encourage you to engage, to, to be involved, to, uh, it's wonderful that you're here on Sundays, but there's, there's other gatherings that are important to be a part of. And so are we actively engaged as part of the Jesus community? Do we delight in remembering the Jesus sacrifice? Do we look forward to those opportunities where I can just go and I can just think about what the Lord did for me? Now, I know it's a busy, crazy world that we live in. And I know there are a billion distractions 
for all of us. But you know, there comes a time and a place where we've got to shut stuff out and we have to just sit and think about the Lord. And one of the great things to think on is what he's done for us. And you know, that's why we take the first Wednesday of every month and we just set it aside just for that very purpose. We set it aside just to focus on the sacrifice of Jesus and to think about it and to sing with one another about it and to pray it into our lives because that's what Jesus' people do. And then are we taking advantage of the Jesus privilege? Are we praying with the people of Jesus, for the kingdom of Jesus to come in all places in our lives, in the church and in the world where it is excluded. And if we're not doing this stuff, then there's two possible things. Either we've just never had an experience ourselves that would uh, bring us to this place where we just see Jesus as so magnificent that we can't do anything but be a Jesus person. Or we have had that experience, but we have forgotten about how profound it actually was. So, so it's, it's one of those two things. These people that we're reading about here, they had an experience that brought them to this place. See, something profound happened in each one of them that, that caused them to be part of this thing that we're reading about here. Now, remember the context. These people that we're reading about who did this, who devoted themselves to this, these people were not from Jerusalem, at least the majority of them. They were from all over the world. They were in Jerusalem for a feast. They were there temporarily. They were like on a holiday. But something so profound happened to them they delayed their return home and they stayed and they engaged themselves in this community. And I'm sure that many of them did this uh, for a season to just saturate themselves in it so that when they went back to their own country, that they could see a similar thing develop. I'm sure they did that. But that's the context. So here's the question. How did they all get to this place? What was it that moved them to become part of this thing that was happening. And the passage that we read today, verse 37, tells us how they got to this place. And let me read from verse 36. It says, therefore, Peter's, Peter's speaking to them. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, here's the key. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. See, this is what happened. They heard the Jesus story that Peter proclaimed to them, and they were cut to the heart. The word means that they were stabbed in the heart, or they were pierced in their heart. So what happened? They heard Peter preaching, and they realized Jesus is the Messiah. Now, they had come to Pentecost. This is 50 days after uh, the Lord had risen from the dead. It's 10 days after he's ascended back into heaven. There's all kinds of stories around Jerusalem about this Jesus of Nazareth person. And there's all kinds of curiosity in the minds of people about who he actually was. 
And of course, some would have said that he was a false prophet and that's why he was justly condemned and put to death. And others would say, no, he wasn't a false prophet. He was a true prophet. And there would have been people that would, would have been healed by Jesus there, undoubtedly. So all of this would have been happening. And then Peter, because the Holy Spirit is poured out and this miraculous thing goes on, Peter stands up and he begins to preach and they suddenly come to the realization of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. And so they are cut to the heart. They realize that they have rejected, that they have put to death the one that God sent to save them. And so what happens here is simultaneously they see their own wickedness, but they also see the glory and the beauty of Christ. And they turn to him. And so this is something that is so impactful. It is so life changing that they're never going to forget it. And this is the thing that brings them into these gatherings where I want to hear that story over and over and over again. I want to be with these people that we share all of this in common. I, I want to think about that unbelievable sacrifice that, that Jesus made for me. I, I want to be with these people to pray to our God now together to see his work and to, and to see this message go. You know, it was like a, a person who discovered a, uh, a cure for cancer or something. You know, somebody who discovers a cure for cancer, if that ever happens, you know, they're not going to sit on their hands and just keep it to themselves, right? They're going to go out and tell the world. And that's what's happened to these people. That's how they become the Jesus people because Jesus radically impacted their lives and there was no doubt about it. So this is the question. Has that happened to us? Now, if it hasn't happened, then by all means, may, may it happen today. May you realize. But again, like I said, let me just take for a second. You know, we live in such a, a world that is so filled with distraction. It's hard to even get the time to think sometimes. But, but it's good to do that. It's necessary to do that. Because everything around us is sort of, it's almost like geared to just keep us from thinking about the, the real questions in life, about the deeper things, about, you know, the reality of, of, of whether there's a God. But, you know, when you, when you stop and you ponder it, and, and it can be something so simple and so easily done as, you know, look at the moon or look at the stars up in the sky and just think, well, how, you know, how did all this happen? How, how did this get here? And, and, you know, scientists now, even though there's, you know, all kinds of atheism in the culture and, you know, scientists generally claim to be atheists, they, they have to admit there are certain things that they just cannot possibly explain why the universe is fine-tuned. How come everything seems to be so precisely um, put together as to provide for the opportunity for life as we know it? And if anything just changed in the slightest degree, we couldn't experience life as we know it. If the sun was just any closer to the earth or any further away, no possibility of life. So as they see all of this stuff, some of them actually decide, well, there must be a God. 
And you know, some of them become deists. They, they recognize, okay, there, there is a, a God who's designed everything. They don't necessarily put their faith in Jesus. There was a man named Anthony Flew who was a, a well-known um, atheist for decades and decades. He was kind of the atheist atheist. And later in his life, as he began to consider this fine-tuning of the universe, he decided that he could no longer be an atheist. Even though he had trained successive generations of atheists, and the, the, the younger atheist thought, well, of course, he went senile. He lost his mind. But he denied losing his mind. He said, no, I haven't lost my mind at all. But when I began to understand this, this fine-tuning, he said, I always had a conviction that I was going to follow the evidence wherever it led. And this evidence leads me to believe that there is a God, that, that this thing we know as the universe that we live in could not... Uh, by chance, come together in this way. But let me take it one step further. This God came to earth as a man because in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and all things were made through Him and nothing was made without Him and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is where it just gets super, just amazing. Now, now these people in Jerusalem, this is the kind of thing that, that hits them. This is what dawns on them as Peter is preaching. That this Jesus is the Lord. This Jesus who died on a cross is the Lord. He rose from the dead. This is the reality. You can't have a moderate response to this. You're, you're, if you believe it, you're all in. You become a Jesus person. That's what they did. So, again, question to us as we close, have we had that experience? Now, if you haven't, you can. You need to recognize that you have sinned against this God and you're accountable to him and that will bring great anxiety, but know that he's already taken care of the sin. So you see, with them, it was a deep conviction of their own wickedness. Peter tells them, you by wicked hands have crucified and slain. It was a deep conviction of their own wickedness, but at the same time, it was the recognition of the glory and the beauty of the Savior. But let me just say this to those that maybe you've had this experience but yet you find that the, the greatness of that initial experience has, has sort of faded over time. And this does happen, doesn't it? How is it that we could, we could have such a profound experience and come to know the Lord, but that as, as time passes, it, it sort of fades and we grow hardened and we grow cold and we grow dull in our hearts. Well, it happens. And if it has happened, then the only way to remedy it is to recognize it's happened, to go back and to remember those realities and to ask God to renew us again. You know, there's always the danger and the scripture uses this term. There's the danger of the heart growing dull. And it, goes, it grows dull when I neglect 
these things, when I'm no longer uh, in, excited about the Jesus story, when I'm no longer really engaging or, or care to so much engage with the Jesus community, or I, I'm, I'm no longer moved by the Jesus sacrifice, or I'm no longer believing in the Jesus privilege of prayer, my heart is, is growing hard. So I've got to go back and just have all of this renewed. And you know, it's just a simple, Lord, forgive me. It's a, it's a simple uh, piercing of the heart. To the, you know, Sometimes the, the recognition is the piercing of the heart itself that leads to then the engagement with Jesus. And so today I just am challenging all of us and I'm included in the challenge. I'm not exempted from any of this stuff. Are we Jesus people, really? Is Jesus the center of our lives truly? Can we say with Paul the apostle, for me to live is Christ? That's what life is, Christ. Now, there were other things in Paul's life. He had a job. He made tents. He did other things. But, but for him, ultimately, at the end of the day, life was about Christ. And is that true with us? If that's true with us, then we will manifestly be Jesus' people. If that's not true, then we need to make the adjustment to make it true. Because this is the one thing. If Christianity is false, it's of no consequence. If it's true, it is of infinite importance. What it cannot possibly be is anything moderate. And so God help us to be in that place where having been pricked in our hearts, having been pierced in our hearts, we are moved to that place of devotion to Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace toward us, your patience with us, your, your love for us. And Lord, even when our hearts grow dull and cold, Lord, you don't cut us off, but you call us back. And so Lord, today, would you call us back and help us, Lord, to turn to you with all of our hearts. Lord, I would pray today as well for any with us who have never realized their own sinfulness and the greatness and glory of the Savior, Jesus. Lord, that they too would be moved to turn to you. Lord, we pray as we, as we look at our lives, as we see how we've become so busy with things, so distracted so much of the time. Lord, help us to be renewed as the people of the Lord, as Jesus' people, because Lord, just like it was back in the early days, the world we live in today needs desperately to see a picture of hope and life and peace and joy and love. And Lord, we're the community that you want to show that through. So renew us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.